morning we are continuing this uh, Christmas series that we've been in that we're calling Behold, Savior is Born. Last week we talked about how there is joy in anticipation. We saw from Mary's perspective and from the shepherd's perspective and from many others how much joy there is in trusting that God will show up. We learned that we still experience joy in the waiting in our lives as well. This morning, we're, we're going to look at the, the servant love of Jesus. The servant love of Jesus. We're going to talk about the way in which he came into the world, the way he lived, and finally the way that he died. And how through all of that, through his birth, his life, and his death, he was a a humble servant, worthy of our emulation. Our primary text this morning is going to be in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Will you stand with me as we read God's word together? This is Paul writing to the church at Philippi. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who... Existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. When he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of God. Read it, believe it, and live it. Let's pray. Dear God, as we open your word this morning and as we look and study how the Son came as a servant, pray that you would be with us, that you would show us the, the ways in which the Son is to be emulated. Show us how we are to adapt, adopt that, that same attitude that Christ demonstrated to us and for us. And so God, as we open your word, is to study it together, I pray that the, the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable and pleasing to you, our God and our King. Amen. You may be seated. Some of you like surprises, don't you? Who likes, who likes surprises? Anybody like surprises? See some hands? Um, I do not like surprises, um, which is why when Audrey planned a surprise birthday party for my 40th birthday, she made sure that everyone parked in the yard so that I saw that there was going to be a house full of people before I walked into the door, so I could at least partially prepare myself. You know, some, some of us like to receive gifts at Christmas that are completely unexpected, some of us make very detailed lists down to the, the style number and the color. 
before we hand them out. Some of us like planning things down to the, the, the minute, the second. Some of us like life to be a little bit more unexpected. Some of us delight when we see the phone ring and it's an old friend that we haven't heard from in a while. And some of us think, oh no, what's happened now? But, but there are always sort of surprises and, and things that come on us, upon us unexpectedly that can, that can change everything. I don't know if any of y'all ever do this. I know you've, you've heard me talk about this before, but often when we drive home from Lumberton, Audrey and I pass on the, you know, it's on the, on the left-hand side, the, the Powerball billboard, and we play the, the what-if game. What if we win? You know, we would have to play in order to win, but, but we're really good at spending the money before we win it. But think about what would happen if you were to win the jackpot on a Powerball. You're... You're going through daily routine. You're just living your life. And, and then all of a sudden, against all expectations, right? Because as I like to say, sometimes the lottery is a tax on people who don't understand math. Because the odds are, are not in your favor. And so against all odds, you, you win and you become an overnight millionaire or, or these days, on occasion, even an overnight billionaire. If you've ever followed any of the stories of people that have won the lottery, sometimes it brings great joy, and sometimes it really doesn't. Sometimes it can bring lots of heartache. But, but it is an excellent illustration that, that, that sometimes when... When, when our whole lives are turned upside down, it can cause us to, to have to adapt dramatically to an altered reality. Sometimes we, we have to adapt dramatically to an altered reality even when we know that altered reality is coming. Any of you who have ever had children know that you have to adapt to an altered reality very quickly when a child shows up. Most of us have, you know, eight to nine months of head start. Um, sometimes you don't, but most of us, most of us do. As we, as we think about the birth of Jesus, as we think about this, this event, we have to realize and understand that one of the things that's happening here is, is for Mary and Joseph, their, their reality is changing. Just, just as as. They are Jesus' earthly parents. Stuff changes, right? But then, of course, what we also know is that on a much bigger, more, more cosmic level, everything is changing as well. We, we turn to, to Luke and we read that first part of, of Luke chapter 2. We just think about, about this. In those days, the decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the whole empire should be registered. This was the first registration took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. So everyone went to be registered, each to his own town. Joseph went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, 
because he was of the house and family line of David, to be registered along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was pregnant. Now, Luke's already told us how that has come to be, right? He tells us that in chapter 1. But then the way he tells the story, it's almost in chapter 2, like we don't know that she's pregnant, right? But, but he was reminding us. While they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him tightly in cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. You know, this was a, an unexpected arrival. I mean, it was expected, right? Because the angel had come to Mary and, and told her that she was going to have a baby, but even that was unexpected, right? Because Mary hadn't done the thing that you got to do to have a baby. So there's some unexpected aspect there, right? If any of you have, have had kids or, or, or been around people that had kids, you, you know you have a tendency of not going far from home the last couple of months. Because the last thing you want to do is be caught away from home when the time comes. And so there's an unexpected event there. But then if we remember who Luke has told us, right, that this child is to be, we find ourselves thinking this is a very unexpected birth. God has come, and, and God is going to, to finally bring the Messiah. Not only that, he's going to be God with us. He's going to be God incarnate. And he doesn't pick a woman in, in, in a ruling house. He doesn't pick a, a queen the daughter of a rich man, he, he chooses a young girl from a small town. God's coming to dwell among his people, and he doesn't choose flashy, he chooses humble. That's sort of unexpected, isn't it? It, it certainly runs counter to, to what the expectations were of the people at the time. Now for us, 2,000 years on, I think it's hard for us to understand how unexpected it was. As I mentioned, you know, for, for Mary, becoming pregnant with the Savior of the world was probably a very unexpected thing to happen. And so we come to the, to the, to the first point here, right? That the arrival of the Messiah was unexpected. We, we, we've heard from prophecy that the Messiah was, was foretold. But after a couple of hundred years, right, you, you sort of stop expecting it to happen. And so what we see is that Joseph and Mary and this unborn child leave home and travel the other side of the country to be counted in the census. Now, Mary probably had some idea how far along she was, you know, if she's going to assume that the moment the angel comes and speaks to her is the moment of conception. She's probably got some idea, but this was 2,000 years ago. There weren't any ultrasounds. 
There was no, there was no taking an image and measuring and figuring out how far along the baby was. As many of you know, even with our modern technology, we don't know when the babies are always going to arrive. Sometimes they come early, sometimes they come late. Sometimes they're weird and they come right on time. You know, I, I doubt that Mary expected to have her baby not at home. I don't think any woman wants to have her baby not at home. She certainly probably wasn't expecting to have a baby in, in a manger. It was unexpected. It was unexpected for her. But it, wasn't, it was not unexpected for God. That was God's plan. But imagine, imagine being far from home, traveling mostly on foot, being extremely pregnant, not having a place to stay for the night. The city is filled with travelers that have come to report for this census. There's, there's literally no place to stay. I mean, think about that. There is physically not a place for them to stay. They're out of options. Now, Scripture does not say this. Okay? I want to be very clear. Scripture does not say this. But I think most of us know that the reason that Mary and Joseph ended up with a roof over their head because at some point some other woman saw a very pregnant woman and told her husband, there is no way you were making that couple sleep on the street. Put them in the stable. Right? Because, guys, let's be honest. We wouldn't think about it. We'd be like, oh, I'm sorry. There's no room inside. So Mary and Joseph are given a manger. Mary gives birth to Jesus. And as we read, she wraps him in clothes and lies him, places him in a manger. Jesus comes, comes into the world in a, in a lowly and humble way. Now, it's lowly and humble and yet still proclaimed by the angels. It, 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 it goes against the expectations of the world. When, when you would expect God to come in, right, you're going to expect it. Why is it that the, in Matthew, when we read about the wise men from the east, where do they go? They go to Jerusalem, right? They go to Herod's court because that is their expectation. That, that if God is going to come and dwell among us, he's going to come and, and reside in a, in a royal household, But he doesn't. Intentionally, God has Jesus to not be born to wealthy parents in a palace, but to humble parents in a manger. We witness the, the most ex unexpected arrival of the Savior of the world and, and knowing that God planned it this way. God connects with humanity in this, in this very vulnerable way, by being born the way that he was, where he was, Jesus immediately is identifying with all of us. Not just with some of us. Jesus is immediately saying, I, I, I came for the ordinary, not just 
the extraordinary. You know, there are those who would even today tell you that, that the love of God is only for, for those who are better than everybody else. There are those who would, who would tell us that, 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 that Jesus' love is, is for those who have gotten themselves cleaned up already. For those who have lifted themselves up out of the mangers and the stables and the gutters of the world already. But that's not true. When, when Jesus came, he was born right into those lowly places. He, he arrived in an unexpected way and it, it set the, the precedent for, for his entire life. As we were reading in that Paul's letter to the Philippians, we, we saw that, that, that during his time on earth, the, the humble nature that Jesus came into the world with is a, is a defining piece of, of who he is. Paul, Paul gives us an, an expectation that we ought to live in relationship with one another in the way that Jesus lived in relationship with us, that we are to, to share in his mindset of humility and service. You know, Jesus could have come into the world and demanded everything, couldn't he? Jesus could have come into the world and just by opening his mouth commanded legions of angels. Jesus could have come into the world and brought the splendor of heaven with him. But what we're told, what we're shown, is that he chose to, to step into our world as a, as a humble human being. That he left, voluntarily left the, the splendor of heaven to fully experience our joys and our struggles and our sorrows. Which brings us to point two, which is, the humanity of Jesus. I think the humanity of Jesus is another one of those things that's unexpected. You know, we, we run into this sometimes. We have a hard time thinking about the fact that Jesus is the God-man. He is 100% God. He's 100% man. And how does that work? And we try and make rational sense of it. And it, it can't be made rational sense of. And, and so oftentimes, I think what we do is we, we forget, we, we lose one or the other. I think for many of us, our danger is to lose the humanity of Jesus. That's what Christmas reminds us of. Christmas reminds us every year, over and over again, of his humanity. Because it was through his humanity that he created the masterpiece of redemption. Redemption. 
The passage in Philippians begins with that call for us to have the same mind that was in Jesus. Adopt the same attitude. Adopt the same mind as that of Christ Jesus. What, what mind is that? Well, he goes on to tell us, right? It's the mind of humility, of selflessness, and of service. It's that mind that led Jesus to willingly set aside his divine glory and take on the form of a human being. You know, the, Jesus, the, the creator of the universe, steps down from heaven, enters our world as a vulnerable baby. He doesn't choose a, a regal entrance born in the splendor of a palace, but rather his first cries filled the air in a stable. He experienced the limitations and the fragility of humanity from the moment he was born until his death. He felt the, the warmth of a mother's love and the comfort of his earthly father's protection. He experienced hunger and thirst and fatigue and a full spectrum of human emotions. He was not just partly human. He was completely human. And pain, physical pain and emotional pain, were not omitted from his experience on earth. You know, we often know, right, we, 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 many of us learn as a small child, what's the, the shortest verse of Scripture? Jesus wept. But have you ever thought about what that means, what that verse means, right? It's in the context of the death of Lazarus. And even knowing what he was going to do as he stepped toward Lazarus' tomb, knowing what was coming, Jesus still wept. Because he was still sorrowful. He was still sad. Jesus is often referred to as a humble servant for his leadership and for the way he loved people. It's, it's consistent with his birth. He, he met people where they were and he, he lived among them. John tells us that, right? The word became flesh and dwelt among us, lived among us. Tabernacled actually is the word, pitched his tent among us. Paul tells us here in Philippians that, that he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is where the, the humanity of Jesus demonstrates his sacrificial love. It was through his humanity that he accomplished the most profound act of love and redemption by dying on the cross on our behalf. By taking on our human nature, Jesus bridged the gap between humanity and divinity, reconciling us to God and bringing us nearer to him. The humanity of Jesus is not just a historical fact, but a living reality that continues to shape our faith and our relationship with God. It means that we have a Savior who intimately understands our struggles and our temptations. Jesus knows what it is to, to face adversity and rejection and suffering. Go and read the Gospels 
And you will see that Jesus faces all of those things. He faces adversity. He faces faces the rejection of his own family at one point. Even though he never sinned, even though he lived a perfect life, he was not without temptation and was not without trials. Jesus became human to, to relate to us, his people, with an intimacy that could not be accomplished otherwise. We could not achieve that intimacy with God by us trying to get to him, and so he came to us. And what that means is that means that we can approach in confidence and in boldness knowing that we have a compassionate and empathetic Savior who sympathizes with our weakness. This is why often when we pray on Sunday morning, I say, let us approach the throne of grace together. Or let us boldly approach the throne of grace. Because Jesus came and and became human We're able to approach. We're able to to approach with confidence, with boldness. In our moments of, of doubt or pain or despair, we can turn to him knowing that he not only hears our prayers, but that he has a lived experience that understands the depths of our hearts. We navigate the complexities of our own human existence. We We can find peace in the fact that we are not alone. And I I want you to, to hear that this morning. No matter who you are, no matter where you are, no matter what's going on in your life, no matter how alone you might feel right this moment, you are not alone. You have a a savior who walked this path before you and who continues to walk with you every day. When when we share in his humble nature, we too can become a representative of God by the way that we love and serve those around us. So, so, So he walks that path with us, but as we model ourselves after him, we start walking with him. And so, we reflect on the humanity of Jesus in in this passage in Philippians. Let us remember that our Savior stepped into our world to to fully understand and embrace our humanity. He did so out of profound love, creating a, a masterpiece of redemption that touches our hearts in the most unexpected and beautiful ways. We've talked about the unexpected arrival of Jesus to his humble parents in a manger. We've looked at his humanity and, and, and shown what that truly means to us, what it truly meant for God to take on human flesh. And so now we're going to look at the end of Jesus' life and notice some parallels between the, the cross and the manger, which brings us to this third point, the ultimate sacrifice. Have you ever really stop to think about the deep connections between Jesus' birth and the way that he died? Have you ever thought, even generally, about the comparisons between the beginning of life and the end? But by God's grace, when many make it to the end of their life, it's 
beautifully heartbreaking in the way that it reflects the beginning. The way that God writes these stories is clear and specific. He, he intentionally chose and designed life to happen this way. And it's the same with the story of Jesus. The beginning of his story is just as important as the end, and the end is just as important as the in-between. Let's look at some of the ways that Jesus, Jesus' birth and death intersect. First, we, we read in Luke 2, 7 that, that Jesus was rejected of men. We see it again in Mark 15, 15 at the end of his life. He was cast outside before his birth that led him to be born in a manger. At the cross, he was rejected and hung between criminals outside of the city. Mary is present at both. She was a, a bookend person to Jesus' life. There are other overlaps as well, right? Myrrh was brought to, to be used for him at the beginning and at the end of his life. At both the birth and death of Jesus, there is darkness. At both, his body is wrapped in cloth. At both, Herod becomes involved. At both, there was worship. Through the, the first was genuine and the second, mocking. At both, wise men recognized his deity. At both, Jew and Gentile were present. At both, he was hailed as a king. Again, at the beginning in earnest, and at the end in mockery and in jest. At both, an honorable man named Joseph was present. Mary's husband, Joseph. At the beginning, Joseph of Arimathea at the end. And in both, we find the chief priests and the scribes involved. Jesus' death and his birth were full of humility and vulnerability. His birth was surrounded by animals in a lonely barn with rough shepherds present. At his death, we witness Jesus hanging on a cross, crucified and punished, surrounded by common criminals. Neither of these experiences is grand or mighty. The parallel teaches us that Jesus' mission was not one of earthly glory and power, but of sacrificial love and redemption. His birth and death bookend a life characterized, as Paul tells us, by humility and selflessness. We can look at the manger in Bethlehem and see that it was the ultimate foreshadowing of Jesus' death. Jesus' birth signaled the very start of his journey toward selflessness and a sacrifice for humanity's sake. Jesus was born to die. He came to earth to offer himself as the perfect lamb of God who took away the sins of the world. And on the cross, Jesus fulfilled this purpose with unparalleled love and devotion. He endured excruciating pain, both physical pain and emotional pain surrendering his own life to atone for our sins. Just as the birth of Jesus was a gift to the world, his death was the ultimate gift of redemption. 
You know, Jesus was the King of kings, the Lord of lords. We even sing that sometimes, right? And yet this King of kings and Lord of lords was born in the humblest of ways. He emptied himself. He put aside his glory for one reason. So that you and I could be reconciled to God. Without Jesus' death and resurrection, which could not happen without his birth, you and I would still be dead in our sin and have no hope of an eternity with God. We can talk about how the birth of Jesus was unexpected. And there was a lot of unexpectedness to it. But I don't want us to forget the most unexpected aspect of it. And it's, it's so unexpected. And, and, and we miss this because we've heard it for all our lives. We've heard it for 2,000 years. But you look at every other religion of the world and, and they can't begin to comprehend this. The most unexpected aspect of Jesus' birth was that God cared enough for us to come. No other religion or philosophy that has ever existed or will ever exist expects that. So Christmas can be a time of unexpected things, right? And I hope on, on Christmas morning when you're opening presents and you get something unexpected, it's a delightful unexpected gift and not a, well, that's getting returned later. but the most unexpected gift that you or I have ever, can ever, will ever receive was the birth of the God-man so that he could come, dwell among his people, live a sinless life, die a substitutionary death, Rise in triumph over sin and death so that we can be clothed in his righteousness and have relationship with him and the Father forever. That is the unexpected gift of Christmas. A Savior who came love us and to die for us not to subjugate us
came to be God with us, to be Emmanuel. I don't know if you have picked up on it yet, but our hymn of invitation every week 